Uh, hey, here's what I want to do before we come to the Word tonight. I want to pray over one thing, and I'd like for, which to, for you to do this at your table in a moment. Just have one person volunteer to pray aloud at your table, and the others can join in and either silent affirmations or amens or uh, however you want to join in in agreement. But I would love for us tonight as our focus of prayer for us to lift up our local school board. Uh, we ran into one of our school board members yesterday and uh, had a great conversation with him. Um, but just in, in that great conversation, realize uh, just um, in, in his words right now, there is a, a four, three uh, more conservative majority to the school board. And every conservative member uh, who is coming up for re-election in the next several years, there is already in full swing a candidate picked to oppose them with, uh, with work happening. And it just was very, uh, just realized there's some major forces that are at work there. So I would just like for us to lift up our school board, pray for them to have wisdom, pray for them to have hearts soft to the Lord, for those who know the Lord, to be courageous and uh, bold in how they stand for uh, the Lord's purposes in our schools and society. And so just if one person, and, and however else you like to pray for them, but if one person at your table will volunteer to pray aloud, and then uh, as I, I kind of sense that you're uh, concluding praying, I will I will pray at the end of that, and we will dive into uh, the book of Acts again tonight. So decide uh, who's going to pray, and you pray. Father, you and you alone are God. You are exalted in all your glory. You are so far above and beyond us. And at the same time, we are so grateful. That for those of us in Christ, we call you Abba. And so, Father, we come tonight. Thank you for the opportunity to open your word, for the opportunity to be your people as a family in this time, in this moment of history, in this place. May we not grow uh, weary from doing good. Lord, and may we not grow distracted from what you've allowed us and given us life to do. So Lord, we, we do thank you for the men and women who are willing to work hard and go through the process of running an election and a campaign to be elected to serve on the school board. We recognize clearly the influence that they have over um, the impressionable uh, young minds of our kids and teenagers, and we just simply ask that you would um, protect safeguard and give wisdom uh, to them, that you would protect and safeguard those who fear you on the school board, that you would um, Lord, that you would allow men and women to serve who would uphold your design and your purpose for the education of children. So may those who are there, may they not grow weary of doing good. May you breathe a special breath of life and encouragement to them tonight. May you strengthen, may they establish their hearts in you. For any that serve that don't know you, 
We just ask that whatever needs to happen in their life and in their heart, that they would come to know you. Lord, and that they'd come to know you even less for what that would do for the school board and more because of what it would do for their own soul. Jesus, bless tonight as we come to your word. Touch our hearts and find our hearts humble to receive your word how you give it. Jesus, it's in your name I pray. Amen. All right, we are going to we're going to we're going to essentially here walk through the New Testament's a little different than the Old Testament and how it's written. Uh, if you read the Old Testament, you've certainly got uh, in the Old Testament um, you've got quite a bit of narrative history in the Old Testament. Uh, in fact, when you're talking about really a chronology, even though in the Old Testament you've got Psalms, you've got Proverbs, you've got wisdom literature, you've got prophecy, you've got Levitical, you've got law, all these different genres in the Old Testament, all of those genres fit inside the narrative of the Old Testament. So when you do what we did uh, this past summer and into the early fall, walking chronologically through the Old Testament, you see all of that where it is contained. When you come to the New Testament, it's a little different because you've got the four Gospels that expound on the life and times of Jesus Christ. All four of those Gospels end with uh, post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. Then you come to the book of Acts, which we did just a, a flyover last week, and that's where right in there, first 14 verses, Jesus ascends into heaven. You've got 28 chapters of the book of Acts covering a period of roughly 30 years, which is looking at and tracing the history of the early church, but, but through the specific lens theologically of Jesus, Jesus' words that you will be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit fills you with power, the ability to actually do it in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And we start in Jerusalem, we end the book in Rome. What's, what's tough chronologically is some of the, the bulk of the, not some of, the bulk of the New Testament are letters. They're letters. There's 27 books in the New Testament. Four Gospels, one is history, one we technically call apocalyptic literature. Wonder which one that one is. Um, but the other than 21 are letters that are written to certain people or person for a specific reason at a certain time. And while all of them occur and are tangible and, and happen in reality, where those fall in, some of those we'll see were written during... The, the, the narrative of Acts, some of them were written after Acts ends. And so as we try to piece together and walk through and, and help you understand from, from the story perspective, the easiest way to do that, having flown over Acts, is, is really to look at Paul. Because Paul, at this point, Paul is the writer of the majority of the New Testament. Now, let me give you a little, if you want a little trivia to keep in your bank for the next time you go on The Price is Right. Uh, or not prices, right? They don't ask trivia. Uh, Jeopardy. Um, the book of Hebrews has never been questioned as to whether or not the Holy Spirit wrote it in its scripture. Long been accepted as canon by the early church. But there's never been consensus on who wrote it. Some say Paul. Some say Apollos. There's also pretty strong, yeah, Ted's back here saying it's Paul. Uh, there's also pretty strong evidence it was very possibly written by Luke. And here's what's crazy for you. If Luke wrote the book of Hebrews, Luke would have written the majority of the New Testament and not Paul. So there's your little trivia. If Luke wrote Hebrews, Luke's written the majority of the New Testament, not Paul. But most of what we know are Paul's letters. So uh, where, let me ask you this question. Someone tell me, where, where is Paul, formerly known as Saul, where is he from? Tarsus. That's right, Tarsus. And I, oops. My, is, let's see, is it on? Yep, it says it's on. We'll worry about the map here in a second. Oh, there we go. Here we go. All right. Uh, Paul is from Tarsus, which is way up here. When you go up the coast of Israel and Syria, Lebanon, Syria, and you take a little left here, there, here's Tarsus up here in Turkey. Now, Tarsus, 
Uh, just you know, about Saul, Tars- Tarsus, and I, I uh, had forgotten this in looking back at it last week. It is a prosperous city. It's a very wealthy city. It's great business, merchant city. It's very privileged because it was exempt from Roman taxation. That's a pretty good city. It's about to be income tax season. Wouldn't it be nice to live in a city that's exempt from income tax? Uh, it was an educational center for its province. It was, so it was very well studied, uh, well-cultured, famous. Paul is from Tarsus, and, and we don't know a whole lot necessarily about Paul's family. We know that through, through his father's side of the family, he inherits Roman citizenship, which again is abnormal. You would not have Roman citizenship unless you were a Roman born in Rome or maybe born in place like Philippi, that was a Roman colony. Somewhere along the way, something had happened. His father had received citizenship. This is a big deal for Paul because remember, Paul is a Jew. Well, how does Paul describe himself in, in the book of Philippians? He's not just a Jew. He's from the tribe of Benjamin, the only tribe loyal to the Messianic tribe. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He speaks the language. He didn't give in to all this Hellenistic nonsense to change and move. He is the real deal, but he possesses the privilege of Roman citizenship which comes into play later on in his life. Uh, it actually comes into play several times in his life. Somewhere during his days, he will learn the trade of tent making because that's how he would support himself at times financially. Now, here's, here's what I want you to do. Uh, um, so I mentioned, I mentioned Philippians. Let me read to you what Philippians says, and then I want you to turn to Galatians chapter 1. Not the book of Acts, but Galatians chapter 1. Philippians 3, Paul describing, uh, if you will, his fleshly resume, he makes this statement. He says, I could boast as having confidence in the flesh more than anyone. He says, I was circumcised the eighth day, so in accordance with the law, check. I, I, my parents did it. I, I come from a family that takes the law serious. There is a, a legacy, a heritage there. He says, uh, of the nation of Israel, I am ethnically a Jew. I'm not grafted in Gentile. I am the real deal, flesh and blood. He says, man, why am I not seeing it here? I hope I don't need glasses. Uh, I, am, I am of the tribe of Benjamin. Again, he's not, he can't, he's not just a Jew generically. He can trace his family legacy back to Benjamin. Benjamin, if you remember from the Old Testament, when the 10 tribes say, nope, we're not gonna be subject to the, the king from, of David's line, we're headed north. One tribe stayed loyal. Who was it? Benjamin. Benjamin's the one that stayed loyal. So he's from, and by the way, unless you were from the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe of Judah, and possibly from, uh, uh, from the Levites, that was likely your only shot to trace your heritage back because the other tribes had been scattered and dispersed and you can't, that's why they call the 10 lost tribes. So he can trace, he can trace back. So we know, uh, we know this from his family. He says a Hebrew of Hebrews, again, meaning he's not one of those Jews that gave in to the, the sweeping reforms of, of Hellenization. Hellenization it's that, that Greek culture that comes in and, and said, well, you know, you, you can go to the gymnasium. You know, if you're a Hellenist Jew, you could go to the gymnasium. You're, you, you as the guys, you could go study in the gymnasium, which meant you were running around in the nude all day. Well, you wouldn't do that if you were a true Hebrew of Hebrews, who spoke the Hebrew language, who kept the ancient tongue, who was, who was loyal to the law. He says the Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, in terms of how, how did he relate and follow the law, Pharisee. So he, well, you know what, Pharisees, remember? Uh, of those, the Pharisees are the ones who, have, they, are, they are the rule followers. You dot the I, you cross the T, you know whether it's a colon or a semicolon, you get your punctuation correct. We follow the law, not just the law, but we follow the thousands of oral laws. He's a Pharisee as to zeal, as to his passion and being there, uh, a persecutor of the church. So here's, that's how he describes his life prior to Christ in Philippians. Listen how he describes it in Galatians. Galatians chapter 1, verse 13. He says, for you have heard of my former way of life in Judaism, how I used it to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my, contempor- uh, of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. He said, hey, before I knew Jesus, I was so passionate. I was, I was leading the charge for the eradication of the church. Not only that, but when it came 
to my place. And, and remember, in, in Israel at the time, Israel is under Roman occupation. So ultimately, the Roman Empire runs the show. But what Rome would do is Rome would allow certain territories a little bit more freedom religiously to rule themselves. So that's why you have, you remember from, the, from Jesus, the Sanhedrin. That is that ruling Jewish body made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. So there, there is a hierarchical ladder to climb in religious life in Judaism. So I, let me maybe put this a different way. He says, prior to my life in Christ, I, no one was more passionate than me. No one would go as hardcore as me. And I was shooting up the ladder of Southern Baptist pastors being invited to conferences. I was the rising young star. I am the future face of where the convention's going. That's what he's saying. Why? And he says, why? Because I was more passionate for the traditions of my religion than any of my contemporaries. Elsewhere, he'll say he outworked them. He says, uh, and, then he, and then he says, but when he who set me apart from my mother's womb, and he talks about his salvation. So which one should you see some background? This helps you get into the mindset of Paul. Paul would have grown up a well-educated. Uh, we know elsewhere, um, we know elsewhere, I want to make sure I didn't miss it here. We know elsewhere in his recounting of his testimony, because he will, what Paul will do, uh, Paul will recount his testimony in Acts 22 under trial and in Acts 26 under trial. So there's a lot of different passages where Paul shares parts of his testimony, what his life was like before Christ, how he came to know Christ. And in all of those, in Acts chapter 9 is the actual moment where it happens, Paul will study in the Hillel school of the Pharisees, he will study under Gamaliel, the most famous rabbi of his day. Paul is well-educated. Paul is, you could not be more, more Jew than Paul. Okay? Uh, Paul, Paul is not an Aggie who's a two percenter. <laughs> Paul doesn't just bleed maroon. He, he is maroon, personified. This is what Paul is. And I need to make sure to not get too, but you just, just if you understand that, start imagining how deep the roots are there for Paul. Paul is a Pharisee. By the time he was a teenager, would have the first five books of the Bible memorized line for line in the Hebrew. He wouldn't be up here walking you through Genesis with his, with his Bible, with his scroll. He'd just be quoting it to you. I mean, Paul is, this is, when, he, when these statements, Paul is, the real deal who is there, his passion is un... I mean, even his teacher. It's his teacher, Gamaliel, who in, in Acts chapter... Acts chapter... The end, I think at the end of, I think it's the end of Acts chapter 5 who makes the statement when they arrest some of the disciples again. He makes the statement, look, let them go because if this is not of the Lord, it's going to fizzle out like all the other ones have over time. Even his own teacher is not pushing the zealousness of go wipe them out, eradicate them. But Paul is. Which makes it all the more remarkable, Acts chapter 9, when Paul's on the way to Damascus. Remember, uh, Jerusalem would be the hub. We don't know when Paul came from Tarsus to Jerusalem, but somewhere along the way he would have to have come to Jerusalem to study under the rabbis and receive the training and walk as a Pharisee as he did. So sometime in his younger life, he came from Tarsus to Jerusalem. It is also, and I'll be clear, this is somewhat speculation, but it's relatively grounded. If he was really this committed in law-abiding as a Pharisee, it is very likely that as a Jew, as a Pharisee, he was married. Now say that because if he was married... That's fascinating because by the time you get to 1 Corinthians, when he's talking about marital status, he is not married. Which means either his spouse died or his spouse left him. Or he wasn't married and we're just simply... But again, that, it is, we don't know for sure, but that is based on the fact of what tradition would have typically held for him to have been that level of Pharisee rising as he was. So again, if you're... Your note taker, don't say Paul was married, guaranteed. It, I'm just telling you it's very likely, but we want, want to be careful. So we know from looking last week, Acts chapter 9, Paul gets saved. He's on the road to Damascus. He's here in Jerusalem. He's coming up to Damascus on the road. 
Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Um, and if, you, if you're still there in Galatians, look at, verse, look at verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers and sisters, the gospel which was preached to me is not of human invention. For I neither received it from man. You hear what he says? He says, the gospel I'm telling you, I didn't hear about it from another human. Nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, meaning on that road to Damascus, he didn't just see a blinding light. He saw Jesus. That's how he recounts that moment. He saw Jesus. He saw the resurrected Jesus appear to him and then walk through that from there. So he comes to faith in Christ. Now here's what we, here's what we know. Look back with me here in, here in Galatians. Uh, look with me in verse 15. But when God, who had set me apart from my mother's womb, called me through his grace and was pleased to reveal his son in me, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Now, let's just pause there for a moment, and, I, and I'm not going to make you turn there, but Acts chapter 9, when, when God tells Ananias, hey, Ananias, Saul, he's in Damascus, his eyes, he can't see, he's, he's coming, I need you to go pray over him. Of course, Ananias goes, are you out of your mind, Lord? That's the guy who's killing all of us. And, and part of God's response to Ananias is, he is my chosen instrument to go to the Gentiles. Paul now, years later writing Galatians, is saying, from my mother's womb, this was God's plan. Which is similar language to the prophet Jeremiah. God says, in your mother's womb I set you apart. And I knew your name before you were ever conceived. I say that to say, and I, I think I had shared this, but it's, it's worth saying again. If we were evaluating on a lot of the standards that we make, when I say we, I mean broadly, I'll just, I'll just, Southern Baptist, that's what I'll say. We're a Southern Baptist church, so I'll at least go that far because I, I, I know Southern Baptist very, fairly well. I'm not trying to pick, but if we were to use a lot of our logic and how we go, let's get to know you, Paul. Let's see, okay, yep, we see you're really called. Let's see your giftings. Let's see your talents. Now let's put you where just it seems obvious God would want you. We would go, Paul, you are the ultimate apologist for the Christian faith to the Jews. You know, that's what Paul said. God, I wasn't appointed. God, didn't, God did not create me and God did not author this whole story and God did not allow all of this training and all of this to ultimately send me to the Jews. It was to send me to the Gentiles. Because God's ways are not our ways. They are higher than our ways. They are above our ways, which means we better always make sure we are submitting our ways and our plans and our thoughts to Him. Which is why when we come Sunday and we look at, well, great pastor, last week we saw Scripture tells us we need to be praying and prayer is powerful. Well, what do we pray? Well, Jesus tells us. And how does He tell us to start praying? Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. So just interesting that little note, but let's keep going. Let's see what else he says here. Uh, to take him up to preach among the Gentiles, he said, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia. He says, so I get saved, come to faith in Jesus here in Damascus, Ananias comes and helps me out. And, and my first thing I did wasn't to go consult with other people. And it wasn't to go down to Jerusalem to the apostles. Instead, I went out and, and by Arabia, we don't mean Saudi Arabia. Arabia would be this area over here, this wilderness area out in what's modern day Jordan. He goes away to Arabia for a period of time. Tradition holds that period of time is no more than three years. Now, what did he do in Arabia? Was, was there any interaction? Was he just out there living a, a, an, a, you know, an aesthetic life of, of a monk? Yeah, I can't remember the name of the, the, name of the, the monk in the early, the, the, by early church. He was probably in the first several hundred years of Christianity, but he was known for being the monk who lived in the, in the desert and would, would sit high up on a pillar so no one could say what? Anthony, there you go. Uh, 
And this is not what, it, we, we don't ultimately know. What we do know is out there in Arabia, I, I give you my impression from what Paul does reveal. I think for the, that period of time in Arabia, Paul was on his knees. He was meeting with the Lord. He said, the gospel wasn't given to me by other people. Gave, got, gave, got it directly from the Lord. I think the Lord was revealing himself to him in a very unique way. And I think he was helping Paul. Paul was going back through all of those Old Testament scriptures and un. This is a term I heard, not deconstructing, but detangling what was not what the what in his Jewish faith he had missed, because the Old Testament scriptures were written by God and clearly point to Jesus. And so he he goes into Arabia, works this out no more than three years. And then look what he says. And they returned once more to Damascus. So he goes out here for some period of time, comes back up here to Damascus. And then it says, then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem. So he serves in Damascus for three years. And he goes up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas, who is also known as Peter, and stayed with him for 15 days. But I did not see another one of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God, I am not lying. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which are in Christ, but only they kept hearing the man who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith, which he once tried to destroy, and they were glorifying God because of me. So he comes down here, meets with Peter and James for two weeks, but not anybody else. And then he's going to go up to the region of Cilicia, back up in here. Here you see Antioch, here you see Tarsus. He's going to come up in here, and he is going to just be faithful in ministry. He's going to be faithful in ministry. He's going to serve. He's going to be engaged and, and, and serve there for a period of, of at least 11 years because look at the beginning of chapter 2. Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. So somewhere along the way, he's met Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It's because of a revelation that when I went up, I submitted to them the gospel, which I preach among the Gentiles. I did so in private, and he proceeds to talk about uh, presenting what he was preaching to the apostles who said, yes, you are correct. Uh, you are preaching the truth. Now, if you really do some digging, if you go, oh, man, this is really, I'm going to do some digging, there's, 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 you have to make a choice here. Is when he goes to Jerusalem right here, Acts 15 for the Jerusalem Council, or is it a, a prior visit that the book of Acts uh, either mentions in Acts 10 or, or subsequently different? Uh, I think it's either what you see in Acts 10 or it's just one that Acts doesn't, doesn't count. Uh, I say that to say because he doesn't talk about the Jerusalem Council comes after his, his mission, first missionary journey. Um, so that, so I, I'm telling you that to say there's a little bit of, disagreement of people of how long was the period, but here's what I want you to understand. From the time Paul comes to faith in Christ, there is a period of 14 years before Acts 13, where Paul is set apart for the missionary journeys that we all associate with Paul. Now, here's why I specify that. Because there, there is a major point of application to understand there. Do not neglect proper training to prepare for ministry. And do not neglect being faithful wherever God puts you in ministry. Now, I realize looking around the room that uh, there's, there's something, I may rephrase, something happened in between my parents' generation and my generation as far as what was taught a lot to, to youth. And I don't necessarily know if it's a right or wrong, but my, my generation was all, man, do something big for Jesus. Go change the world. Right, change the world for Jesus. We're gonna, and this has trickled on in various forms down even to the generation below mine that's currently in college. And listen, I think it's great. We ought to have God-sized, God-given dreams. 
But part of what that has turned into that I see very prevalent in my generation, but I don't think anybody's exempt from this, so you just have to look at it. Part of what that's turned over my generation is, man, got to get in there, got to do it right now. I don't need that seminary training. I, I don't need that training. I, I, I got to go now. I got to do it. Why? God, God works with the young people. God moves to the young people. Uh, you know, got to have that platform. Got to get up that, got to reach as many people as we can. Got to, and we, we use a lot of what Paul says to justify it all. Yet here's a guy who, when he first got saved, you notice he wasn't immediately put on the speaking circuit, which is totally something we would do in the last 50 years. Oh my goodness, this person who hated Jesus and was very public about it got saved. Boom, put him on the conference. They're preaching a sermon. Doesn't scripture say don't put a new believer in that position? It does no matter how famous they are. Understand, Paul was one of, if, if we take Paul's word seriously, then religiously in Jewish life, he was famous. Yet he went away and he didn't just go away. He went over in the middle of nowhere where he was trained and processed. And decided. Now, he didn't just do nothing. He, did, he was faithful in the ministry. He was faithful behind the scenes. We don't know what all he did in those years. We know he taught. We know he preached. We know he, he, brought, he took up collection and served people. He was faithful where God put him. And being faithful where God put him, he was able to receive every ounce of the training God wanted for what God would, was ultimately going to go and send him to live the life that we all know of the Apostle Paul. So never neglect, whether it's in your life or whether you see younger people who are somewhat discouraged, I remind myself of this, never neglect. God's ways are not our ways. His timing in our life is not our timing. Do not neglect what he does to prepare you and equip you and be faithful to serve where you are, no matter how visible or invisible it is. Because Paul's heart wasn't about having some massive ministry. His heart was just about being faithful to the Lord. And that ought to be all our hearts. So again, all this takes place prior to Acts 13. Now, if you've got your Bibles, flip with me back to Acts chapter 13. All of this takes place, and it says, Now there were, Acts 13, 1, prophets and teachers at Antioch in the church that was there, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were serving the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set Barnabas and Saul apart for me for the work which I have called them. Which also means God, Paul was really submitted to God's timing. I think Paul knew early on, he understood very clearly, he was called to be the apostle to the Gentiles, but he didn't go try to be the apostle to the Gentiles in the missionary journey context until the Lord said time to go. So they're up here in Antioch. This is the Antioch we're talking about right here, which is a phenomenal uh, early church. It would have been extremely multicultural, Jews, Gentiles, Gentiles from all over, all different backgrounds. Uh, you see that there in the reference to the various uh, people and where they're from who are there. And they launch out there. So Acts, Acts chapter 13 through Acts chapter 15, verse 35, covers the first missionary journey of Paul. Uh-oh. We're not turning again. That's all right. Maybe it'll catch up. First missionary journey of the Paul uh, 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 that they go. And so let me just give you kind of the, the rough... Uh, the rough outline here. Oh, here we go. First missionary journey of Paul. They're here in Antioch chapter 13. Uh, Paul and Barnabas, they're going to, to set sail. They're going to go on a missionary work. So they grab a boat and they come over here to Cyprus. They do some ministry on Cyprus. They're going to grab another boat, come over here to Perga. They're going to come up to Antioch in Poseidon and, and encounter here intense Jewish opposition come down here to Iconium, they're going to come down here to Lystra, over to Derby, and then they're going to retrace all of their steps back to, uh, back to Antioch. Uh, in this moment, here's what they would do. They would go into, this is an ancient home synagogue. This would have been similar to some of the synagogues that Paul would go into. This was their pattern. He'd go into a city, find a synagogue, go in, read the scrolls, and start with the Jews, start with 
those Old Testament scriptures, uh, see who, who was willing to talk and who wasn't, and then go with those who are willing to talk, go out in the marketplace, and then continue to meet people from there, see people come to faith in Christ, start churches. During this first missionary journey, they're going to encounter the first real, uh, real opposition um, and, 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 and intense levels of persecution that come from the Jews. They're going to encounter it in Iconium. Uh, they're going to come into Lystra. They're going to follow them into Lystra. The Jews are going to come from Antioch, Poseidon, and Iconium. They're going to win. This is Acts 14, 19. Win the crowd's over. They're going to stone Paul, drag him out of the city, thinking he was dead. Obviously, Paul did not respond favorably to the stoning if they thought he was dead. I mean, I'm not, we laugh, I'm not trying to be here, I'm being truthful, I mean, I understand the suffering Paul's going through. I mean, Paul was beaten enough with rocks that they, they legitimately thought the man was dead, so they dragged him out outside, uh, the, but then the disciples stood around him, he, uh, got, up, he entered, in, in, got up and entered the city, and the next day he left with Barnabas for Derby. and so they're going to go through here. Now, along the way, as they encounter some opposition, they took a young man by the name of John Mark with them. John Mark, who wrote Mark's Gospel. John Mark is going to abandon them. Um, John Mark's going to abandon them here when the, uh, um, when the persecution picks up. He's going to abandon them. He's going to flee. And this is important to note for where we're going. So all in all, this first missionary journey, Acts 13 through Acts 15, 35, it's going to cover about 1,400 miles and is going to take anywhere from one to five years for them to complete. Likely, a lot of people estimate it was about a year and a half, but somewhere in between one and five years, because we don't know totally, again, don't know how long, it doesn't always say how long they stayed in certain places. After the journey, though, Paul and Barnabas go down to Jerusalem, and that's the Jerusalem council where they're basically saying, look, Gentiles are coming to faith in droves. We've got some people, the Judaizers, who are saying, that's great that you believe in Jesus for your salvation, but you must also fulfill these sacrifices, fulfill these festivals, fulfill these. We need to get this ironed out. What's the real deal? And of course, that's when James, the brother of Jesus, is going to be the one who ultimately stands up and say, look, tell them abstain from sexual immorality. Tell them to abstain from from uh, meat sacrificed to idols, and, uh, and, and, and let's get on with it. Let's see people come to faith in Christ, and let's go. They don't have, Gentiles don't have to become Jews to become Christians. That's key. It's a huge moment uh, in the life of the church. Following Acts chapter 15, they're going to go back from, from Jerusalem, and they're going to go back up to Antioch, their home base. They're going to preach. Paul and Barnabas are going to go there. But then it says, Acts 15, verse 36, after some days... Paul said to Barnabas, let's return and visit the brothers and sisters in every city we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Hey, let's go back. Let's see how they're doing. Let's check in. And this is a great principle, by the way, for as we engage as a church, whether Lord willing, one day we engage in church planting or whether we get to engage in, in, in mission, uh, mission opportunities with other church planters in our country or around the world, this is a great reason why we don't, we don't just do missions as, a, as, you know, as, as just one and done, come in, ooh, great destination, come in one time. There's, there's, it's a relationship. It's a relationship. Let's go back. Let's check. Let's see. And so this is going to be what, whoa. No, that's all right. Makes it look like the next missionary journey was fire and brimstone. Uh, here we go, okay. But notice this, look at what it says. It says in verse 37, Barnabas wanted to take John called Mark along with them. Paul was of the opinion they should not take, uh, take along them this, with this man who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to do the work. And it turned into a sharp disagreement such that they separated. Barnabas the encourager said, hey, John Mark, he's, I'm sure this was kind of the idea. John Mark, moment of weakness, he's come back, he's going to be strong, he's going to be faithful, let's take him with us. Paul going, heck no, you, 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 you quit when the fire got on, we're not taking you back. And, and, and this becomes, a, it says a strong disagreement, this is a bitter conflict between two men who have been ministry partners for, for somewhere over a decade. And they will split, they will separate now, I want you to notice the separation. It's just two things to notice because I've heard this 
abused before to justify uh, things that it shouldn't be. One, Acts is not saying that they should have split. It's not saying that they should have split over. It's just telling us this is what happened and they split. It's describing something, not affirming something. And I say that because when you get to 2 Timothy, Paul's last letter, as he's in Roman prison awaiting death, he was writing Timothy, hey, please bring me this. And he makes the statement, please send John Mark to me for he is good. He's an encouragement to me. So somewhere between here and the end of his life, Paul and John Mark have a reconciliation. And for all we know, Paul might stand before you today and go, you know what? That disagreement was one of the single dumbest moments of my life. We don't know. Two, there was mutual disagreement. This was not the case of Paul going, well, I don't want you, and Barnabas going, well, they mutually decided this is not going to work. We're going to part ways. It was mutual. So Barnabas and John Mark go their way. Paul takes Silas. Paul takes Silas, and after being entrusted, they went on the second journey. So you can see here, they're going to start out in Antioch, but they're going to go a little, instead of coming this way, they're going to go up, go up through uh, up through Tarsus. They're going to come up here, Lystra. They're going to come back. Here's, they're back in Derby, checking on the churches, back in Lystra. Lystra is where we meet the young man by the name of Timothy, who will become uh, no, no one more as Paul's son than Timothy. This is where Timothy will, will, will meet him and he will, he will come into the fold. They're going to go back up to Iconium. They're going to go to Poseidon. Now, if you will remember, if you were at uh, winter, uh, winter Renewal and you heard Papal preach through that part of Acts 16, where Paul's saying, hey, we want to go. You've charged me with the gospel. You've told me to go to the Gentiles. We want to go. We want to go over to the Gentiles. We want to go over to Cappadocia, to Asia. And God says, no. So they went up here. We want to go into Bithynia and Pontus. And God says, no. So they go over. These are those regions that the Holy Spirit's saying, no, you can't go in. That's where those are. Now, I've thought about this a little bit more, and I just want to simply state this. There, there, are, there, there have come to be in, uh, and, and this I realize may be, may be a little more, um, I may be showing my, my youthfulness in this a little bit, but it, I'm, I'm just going to tell you what I know, and if nothing else, then this can help you as you love on your children or grandchildren or even great-grandchildren. But, I, but it's fully applicable to you too, just to be clear. I just have seen it more, probably because in working with college kids, they're all trying to figure out what God's will for their life is. So that's half the conversations you have. But there's kind of come to be two thoughts with God's will in, in popular Christian counsel. One, one is this, God has very specific plans for your life. And if you sneeze wrong, you're going to mess it all up. Well, that's a pressure not one of us can bear. And that's not necessarily how it's presented. That's just how it's received. <laughs> the other side is kind of a response to this hyper, there is a specific level of God's will for everything. You know, God cares about what color shirt you wear today. Did you pick out the shirt that God wanted you to pick out? That kind of this hyper the other side has come in and said, look, God's will is the stuff he's clearly said in scripture. Pray without ceasing, share the gospel, this. So follow the stuff God said and any decision you've got to make, as long as it's not something blatantly sinful, it's God's will. So let me tell you how this plays out. This side says, God has one soulmate for you to marry, one specific, and out of 8 billion people in the world, you better date right to find them. That's terrifying. This side says, hey, as long as they're a Christian and they love Jesus, marry him. Ah, there are some, I know some Christians who are solid, great Christians that should never get married. <laughs> now, why do I bring that up? Because here's what's interesting. And, and this, this right now is probably, honestly, for our younger people, this is more the popular speakers out there, probably more where they land on stuff. Good or bad, right or wrong, I'm just, I'm just, now here's what's interesting about this. This passage tells you that to go, you know what? God's called me. I know his will. He's called me to go. 
That's a place that's never heard. I'm going to go there. That's God's will. This passage tells you, no, it's not. If that logic of, as long as I know the specific, I can do, as long as it's not sinful, I can do it. So I, God's called me to go to the Gentiles. There's some Gentiles who's never heard. I'm going there. Well, that passage, this passage undermines that. Because that's exactly what Paul was saying. And God said, no, no. Now we can sit here and say, why God say no? I don't know. <laughs> we don't know. If not, at, at, at minimum, we know simply that God wanted Paul and Silas and Timothy. God wanted Paul over here in Philippi because he had an encounter plan for Paul and Timothy and Silas to meet Lydia by the river. That I do know because that's in the text. So all this simply to say, here's the good news with God's will. Does God have specific plans for our life? Yes. And here's the great news. God cares so much about us walking in his plan. He will tell us no if we try to go outside of his plan. Our job is to heed and follow him in humility. That's very peaceful news for all of us. Because not all of us ought to be concerned with God's will for our life, no matter how old or young we are. God has an actual plan for our life of things He wants to use us to do this side of heaven for eternity in this world. And He knows we're not qualified enough to figure it all out. Which is why it's His plan. And He'll guide us into it. We just have to walk in humble dependence and obedience with Him to do it. So, second missionary journey. They're going to get there. Of course, they're going to end up here in Europe. They're going to sell across. Philippi is where they're going to hit. This is the first uh, church. Of course, this is the great stories in Philippi where, where uh, they start preaching the gospel. A little bit of persecution breaks out. They, arrest, they beat them, arrest them, throw them in prison. Of course, that's then the earthquake that comes and shakes, and the Philippian jailers terrified. Oh, they're going to put me to death because they're going to have they're going to have fled and. There's Paul and Silas just singing praises, songs of praise, and they say, don't worry, we're still here. Why are you still here? And they share the gospel, and that jailer and his whole household get saved. And of course, the next part, I just love the next part. I wish one of those moments to be a fly on the wall. They bring him before the authorities of the city, having beaten and thrown them in prison. And I just would love to be the fly on the wall to watch Paul go, excuse me, I'm a Roman citizen. Because by a Roman citizen, they can't beat him or throw him into that prison. And they all of a sudden tuck their tails, please forgive us and get out of the city. And uh, I just, it's one of those moments that from a human standpoint, I think would be entertaining. But it's where the first time you see Paul making use of something God had allowed him to have uh, to, to, to do those things, uh, do those things there. So they're going to go through, they're going to go through Philippi. They're going to end up, of course, these are a lot of the places we know Paul going. He's going to ultimately end up here in Berea. Uh, or sorry, he's going he's to end up over here in Thessalonica. Uh, Thessalonica, there's going to be intense persecution, intense opposition. They're going to go and take the home of the man that the church is meeting in and throw him before the authorities. And I love the statement in Acts 17 that they make. They come up, they, they take Jason in front of the authorities, and they, the authorities go, what, what's going on? Why are you getting into all of this? And they say, behold, the men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. There is so much you could unpack and apply from that statement, but that is, that, is part, that is what it means to be an ambassador for the kingdom of heaven, is that we are people God would use to turn this world upside down. Which fundamentally means, if you're going to walk and live upside down compared to the world, we're not ever going to fit in here. We're not going to fit in with this world. So this is Thessalonica, intense persecution in Thessalonica. They're going to get over here to Berea. What are the Bereans famous for? Anybody? Studying Scripture. They're the ones. Paul comes in, and he, he, he pays them uh, a credit. He says, look, I came in, I taught you the truth, and you didn't just go, Woo, Apostle Paul, thank you very much. You said, hey, thanks, Apostle Paul. Let's go check the Scriptures. Oh, he's right. He's preaching the truth. Okay, we'll accept what you have to say. It's a great reference for all of us. It doesn't matter who's preaching the word. It doesn't matter uh, if it's me. It doesn't matter if it's somebody else. We had to all be people. Take it back. Take it back to Scripture. Can a pastor get something wrong? Absolutely. 
Can a famous speaker who everybody loves and writes Bible studies get something wrong? Absolutely. We take it back to the Word because the Word doesn't get it wrong. Now, just to be clear, if the preacher preaches something or the teacher teaches something that's clearly true in Scripture, but you don't like it, you can find somebody to back up your claims twisting verses of Scripture. Don't use that nonsense to say the, the, the preacher or teacher's wrong. And I'm not saying that to like, ooh, yeah, pastor, I'm going to defend my... That's not, I, I just mean understand we live in such a wacky day today that that also happens. My simple point is if you're going to walk with the Lord and you're going to be committed to His words, you take everything everybody says and you take it captive to the Holy Spirit in His word. So they're going to be up here in Berea. They're going to make their way down here. They're going to end up in Athens. Of course, this is the famous Acts Sermon on Mars Hill. Hill? Hill? Uh, Sermon on Mars Hill where he's going to go up and, and preach. And uh, they're going to end up in Corinth. This is going to be the beginning of the Corinthian ministry. They're going to, and then they're going to cross over. Uh, you're going to see them ultimately hit uh, over in here in Ephesus and then make their way back. They're going to end up coming all the way back down to Jerusalem in this time. Uh, in this time, um, again, just notice too over here, they're going to move through this region is southern Galatia. I point that out because the book of Galatians is not written to a singular church. It's written to the churches in the region because Galatia is not a city. It's a region. Uh, they're going to travel in this whole journey. They're going to travel 2,800 miles, so double what the last journey was. And, and from what we can tell, it takes them a little over two years to complete the journey with 18 months of that staying in Corinth, faithfully ministering in Corinth, a uh, wild, wild city. The ancient world was just as depraved as what we see in our culture today, and Corinth was known, was known for the ultimate of debauchery and sinfulness. Uh, he's going to go and do ministry in there. During this journey, and this will be how we wrap tonight, during this journey... This is going to be when Paul writes, uh, this is going to be when Paul writes the book of Galatians. It's going to be during this journey where we started out tonight. As well in this time, while Paul is spending those 18 months over here in Corinth, is when Paul's going to write First and Second Thessalonians. The two letters to the Thessalonians. That's going to be in AD 50 uh, when he writes those letters. And so just briefly, let me tell you, actually, I can't see the clock back there, so we're right on time. Uh, let, me just, let me just tell you this with Galatians. Uh, Galatians is the earliest of all Paul's letters. It's one of the few letters to be, never be challenged. And so there's a lot, of ch a, lot, a lot of modern day criticism will say, well, Paul didn't really write that. that no one's really ever done that with Galatians. Galatians pretty well always been accepted. Uh, he's he's going to visit that region. Here's here's just simply say about Galatians as we close out. Galatians is a fascinating letter. I want you to think about this. Paul's going to spend 18 months in the city of Corinth. We know from the letters to the Corinthians, which he'll write next, we know that the church in Corinth is all sorts of messed up. Sexual immorality all over the place. Misuse of spiritual gifts, showing of partiality. I mean, it is, it is, if you came to me and said, Pastor, I'm moving to a new city. Here's the church I'm going to go to. And it's that church I'm going. Don't you dare step foot there. Now, here's what's interesting. Somewhere along this missionary journey, having spent most of it in Corinth, seeing the utter depravity of that city in a way that we would see out in our world today. Somewhere along the way, Paul writes the letter to the Galatians. A church which is not struggling with any kind of sexual immorality or gross sin by, by most of our standards. No, instead, the church in Galatians is struggling with a group of people that have come in and said, hey, that's great that you trust in Jesus by grace through faith for your salvation, but really to keep that salvation, really to be right, you've got to maintain the festivals, you've got to keep this, and they're going, oh, okay, yeah, that's right, we, we, need, we need to go back. And Paul's going, what on earth are you thinking? 
You are submitting to a yoke of legalism and works-based righteousness that is, that is antithetical to everything that the gospel of Jesus is about. And he goes back and unpacks, and in some ways Galatians is almost a mini Romans in a defense of the gospel and the fact that we've always been saved. Grace has always come in the life of believers going all the way back to the beginning through faith. And he gives the example of Abraham and he, he, he lays this down through the first four chapters to ultimately get to chapters, chapter five to talk about walking in the spirit versus the flesh with that great promise. You wanna know how to not succumb to temptation in your flesh? Walk in the Holy Spirit. The language there is that if you walk in the Holy Spirit, it is impossible to fulfill the desires of the flesh. Of course, the fruit of the Spirit, he, he lays those out, the fruit of the flesh, what those are. He gets into chapter six, talking about bearing one another's burdens, not growing weary of doing good, giving these, these ethical realities that come out in our life that are all built and dependent upon living out a gospel relationship with Jesus that is by grace through faith, not plus works. And what's fascinating to me about that is the harshest rebuke, in my opinion, from a linguistic standpoint that Paul gives to any church that he writes to in the New Testament is not to the Corinthian church. It's to the Galatian church. It's almost as if there is a greater danger to our faith and ability to walk with Jesus when we become ensnared by legalism of works and traditions then there is living in a society where gross and blatant immorality is on display. Now, don't mishear me. I'm not saying Paul didn't take this serious. He did. He said, hey, church, you're celebrating that guy's immorality. You need to kick him out and let him be to Satan. That's pretty harsh. Don't hear me minimize this, but hear me just say a word of caution. If you, I, I am, I, my two greatest battles in my faith as a believer are worry, worry and fear, and perfectionism. Now, not perfectionism with you. I give you mercy all day long. Perfectionism with me. Which means there is a subtle sin in my life where Satan can get me distracted to base my relationship with the Lord, which is solely on the basis of His grace. My confidence in Jesus is solely on the basis of his grace. My ability to get up and, and have wisdom for the day, my ability, solely based on his grace. I can begin to believe it's based on how I performed as, a, as his child. And to hear Paul's rebuke, I realize I have to take that tendency with just as much seriousness as I take standing against the temptation to lust and sexual immorality. Now this one screams a whole lot more to us than this one. Because you can live in this one and look really holy. But it's, it's interesting. Here's where Paul writes Galatians. Uh, it's, it's a phenomenal message and um, would encourage you. It's a, great, it's a great book. Obviously, we started there tonight. And that's where we will end. We will pick back up with, uh, with the Thessalonians and uh, the third missionary journey next week as we walk here through the New Testament church family. So grateful for you, love you, and praying for you uh, in the midst of our uh, desperately broken world. Encourage you to be here Sunday. We're going to walk through Matthew chapter 6. If Sunday we saw that we're supposed to pray at all times because God expects it and prayer is powerful, and the next logical question is, well, what are we supposed to pray and the good news is Jesus already knew we'd be asking that and he's already answered the question. So we're going to look at what do we pray and how do we apply that into our lives in the way that we're praying Sunday. So uh, see you here then. Let me, um, let me just say a brief word of prayer to, to send this out and I appreciate you being here, church family. And be safe on the roads going home tonight. Father, thank you for your word. And Jesus, may you truly be hallowed in our eyes. May we be more amazed by the greatness and wonder and majesty of who you are than what we think is the greatness of our performance. 
May we have eyes that look less on trying to figure out how well we're doing it and eyes that are just locked on you in absolute love and awestruck wonder at the fact that you are above all. And that in each and every one of our lives, there was a, there was a moment where you convicted our heart, where you, no, no, maybe we didn't see you in the way that Paul saw you and heard your audible voice, but Lord, just the same as Paul, there's a moment where you interrupted our lives and, and brought us to a point of having to make a decision. Would we trust you or would we not? Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you loved us enough to pursue us. And thank you, Lord, that when it comes to your will and your plan for our life, we sometimes think it's stressful. Or we think certain parts of it are stressful. Lord, you really have made it simple. I'm not saying it's easy, but you've made it simple. It's love you and trust you and follow you where you lead. So, Lord, may that be who we are. May that be who we are from how we schedule our days, from who we pray for, to who we talk to and we walk out to check the mail. May we be a people who love you, who are about your mission. And we just praise you, Lord. It's in your name I pray. Amen.